Christianity is known for some extreme beliefs. It's not really extreme to believe in God per se or to, to think that he made the world and will redeem the world. What's extreme is to believe is Jesus is that creator, savior God. Just think about that claim when it was first made. I mean, who was Jesus at the time? How did people think of him? Well, he's that guy who's born in Nazareth, was a peasant, became a rabbi, and then the Romans killed him on a cross. But the claim is that guy is not just a guy, that he is the, the, the God-man who made the entire universe. He's actually the creator, savior God of, of all things. That, that's a bit more of a stretch back then, and it's still a stretch for many people today. And to the world, it's just foolishness. It's nonsense to think that that Jesus is actually the, the creator God. But to us who are being saved in Jesus, we see the wisdom of God and the power of God. And the world might see us as Jesus freaks or religious zealots. But if your eyes have been opened to behold the supremacy of God in Christ, then you know he really is the purpose of all things. He's the meaning of all things. He's the center of of all things in this world. And that should be true of your life as well. And the truth claims of Christ's identity are found all over scripture. And it's important for you to know these claims and to think on them. That what does the Bible really say about Jesus? And what do you really believe? Is Jesus truly supreme? And if he is, how should that change your life? And then if you're really united to him by faith, how should that change the way you live? It sounds like the true identity of Jesus is a pretty big deal, and it is. And that truth is revealed all over Scripture, that he is the supreme Lord. But I will tell you what, that our passage for this morning contains what just might be the most concentrated and potent revelation of who Jesus is. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about a nuclear explosion of truth about the person of Jesus, that to him belongs cosmic supremacy. And that's something we need to behold because it it bolsters our faith. It guides our faith and our daily living. This is essential Christianity to know Jesus and it's, it's holy ground. And so let's approach with just wonder and caution and excitement to see who is Jesus. And the passage I'm talking about is Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20. So take your Bibles, open them now. Uh, there now. It's our passage for this morning. As we continue through Colossians, this is a, a big passage. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Many scholars believe this passage represents a, an ancient poem or hymn that was from the early church and Paul incorporated it into his letter. And it is indeed skillfully worded. There's a lot of parallelism and, and rhythm in the Greek at least. There's also a change in style. As you might know, Paul usually writes in these long, drawn-out sentences. He's developing complex arguments. But here in chapter 1, 15 through 20, it's like a machine gun burst of these short, little, terse truth statements on Jesus. With each statement, though, Paul is shooting to kill. There's no wasted words here. He's saying a whole lot about who Jesus is in in a very short space. And whether this was an ancient hymn or confession or not, we don't know. There's no real direct evidence for that. Either way, though, it still comes to us by Paul's pen under the inspiration of Scripture. And it's worth looking at. 
Now, speaking of Colossians, this little section really does, though, tie perfectly into the flow of Colossians, which is why I think in the end, Paul just you know, wrote it himself. Now, from our introductory message, you might recall what's referred to as the Colossian heresy. Remember that? The Colossian heresy. That some false teaching was stirring, not in the church, but in the culture in Colossae. And Paul's writing to ward that off. He's giving these new believers a strong shot in the arm of truth to inoculate them against the error that is surely going to come. And most of that error centered on the person of Christ. One of the main marks of the Colossian heresy was their diminishing of Christ. They did not outright reject Christ. They believed in Jesus, but they did not accept him as supreme or divine. Jesus was merely one among many spiritual beings. They believed in a chain of spiritual beings. Later, they'd be called emanations. Each one coming from God, but resembling God a little bit less. As you go down the chain, they're a little more inferior to God. And Jesus, he might be high up on that chain, but he's, he's still not supreme. He's not the true God. And accordingly, they de- denied the sufficiency of Christ to save. And do you want salvation from sin? Well, Jesus is not enough from that. You need some special knowledge, some secret enlightenment, which they can provide, but Christ is not enough. And do you want salvation from Satan and demons, deliverance from spiritual forces? Well, Jesus is not enough. I mean, there's a whole hierarchy of spirit beings, and you need to pay homage to them all if you want it to go well with you. And so no wonder we find later in Colossians that these people worshipped angels. But Paul is writing to counter all these points in advance. And this passage here is his first main blow to this teaching. He's showing how, to the contrary, although Jesus is fully man, that he's also fully divine. And he's supreme over everything, visible and invisible. He's, in fact, the creator and sustainer of everything. And so if you want deliverance from sin and Satan, look no further than Christ. These pagans who had become Christians to whom Paul is writing, they don't need to turn back to their other gods, their false gods. They had truly found in Christ the supreme Lord of the cosmos. And he's worthy of all their allegiance and worship. He's worthy of yours as well. Now, I'll tell you, this passage is still so relevant because we live in a postmodern and post-truth age where science has replaced the Bible and man has replaced God. And, you know, the needs we have today, Christ can't meet. He's not sufficient for these needs. You want answers in life, meaning in life, you need to look elsewhere outside of Christ. But that is not so. You need to see that. You need to see why that is. And you need the same strong dose of truth of the supremacy of Christ to inoculate you against the same error to show you why Jesus is center of everything. And that's what we get in this passage. So let's go ahead and and look at this truth, this dose of truth on the identity of Jesus now. Let's read Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Talking about Jesus, he says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, I know we just had 4th of July, but, but here Paul is putting on a, a different kind of fireworks show, a fireworks show of truth, and he's just, it's like the end of the fireworks show where they just launch all the salvos, just kind of the finale. That's kind of what this is. He's firing in all salvos and just showing this huge barrage of truth about Jesus. And so we're going to watch this show. We're going to find here nine powerful displays of Christ's supremacy. Nine powerful displays of Christ's supremacy in this passage. This time, I'll tell you up front that there's so much in here worth really thinking through. You probably know there's no way we're making it through all nine of these this morning. We're going to make it through the first three. I'll just tell you up front. It's not even, we're not even going to try, right? We'll make it through the rest next time. But for now, we'll start with the first three of these just powerful displays of Christ's supremacy. So let's get started. The first one. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. It was back in verse 14. Paul got off on a tangent on Jesus. Now he's going to stay on that tangent. He's going to make it a main road. And so he's still talking about Jesus when he says, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image in the Greek is icon, from which we get the word icon. It speaks of a likeness or representation. And most often it's referring to a physical likeness, like the image of Caesar on a coin. But, you know, God is invisible, like verse 15 says. And 1 Timothy 6, 16 confirms that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. That's kind of a hang up for some people. What does that mean? The image of the invisible God. How can something invisible have an image? But that's only really a trouble to the modern mind. We can't help but associate the word image with a physical representation. That's not the only way this word was used. And to the Greeks, this image could also be used to speak of the essence of something, where the essence of an object could be represented by an image. And this, I believe, is what Paul means here, that in Christ, we're seeing the essence of of the invisible God on display. We're not talking about outer looks, but inner quality. So when it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's not talking about his physical form, as if God secretly has a a human body or a human form. It's talking about his nature and character. And keep in mind, we humans were also made in the image of God. Right? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our, our image, according to our likeness. But that is likewise not talking about a physical image. That the image of God and man consists of man's unseen nature, his intellect, his emotion, his will. And further, we share in some of God's attributes. We're not the perfect image 
of the invisible God. There are many attributes of God we do not share, but we were made to reflect God's invisible image. In the ancient world, they they didn't have mirrors like we have mirrors today. We have silvered-backed mirrors that gives that perfect reflection. They, They didn't have that. That's a relatively modern invention. Most of their mirrors consisted of just like a polished piece of bronze, which, as you can imagine, is not going to give you a perfect reflection. It's like using a communion tray as a mirror. Like, try doing your makeup in that. It's not a perfect image, and we likewise are limited. We are an imperfect image of the invisible God, but not Jesus. He is the perfect image, the perfect revelation of the invisible God, the God who is spirit. That Jesus illuminates God's essence. And I'll stress again, this is not talking about God's physical image. He has no form. As if, you know, God, you know, he really has two arms and two legs. No, he, he's spirit. But it's talking about his essential attributes. Even before the incarnation, God the Son existed as the perfect image of God. But now in the incarnation, Jesus takes on a human form. And, and as the God-man, Jesus makes visible to us the image of God, and not in his human body, but in his nature and in his character. In his nature and character, he's perfectly revealing God. You know, there's another image of God that, that God left behind, an image of his invisible nature, another imperfect image. And do you know what it is? Creation. Creation itself. Romans, uh, Romans one twenty says, For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So God took this physical world and used it to reflect some of his invisible attributes. For example, just just take the sheer size and scope of the universe that we now know there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth. And I don't know about you, it seems a bit excessive, right? Like, why so much? We would have been impressed with like a thousand stars or even like a million stars, but why like 10 billion times 10 billion stars? It's kind of overkill. But probably to show us that God is, you know, he's a little bit like that. He's really, really big. He's really, really powerful. He's really, really limitless. But only in Christ do we find just the full, final, and perfect revelation of who God is, his invisible nature. We see the fullness of God in Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he's going to do. And the scripture affirms Jesus is the revelation of God. Hebrews 1.3, it's a huge verse. It says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and he's the exact representation of his nature. And then John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So this is part of the supremacy of Jesus, just being the complete, total, perfect, absolute image of God. And as you can imagine, it it would take deity to perfectly reveal and, and reflect deity and And so it goes for Jesus. To be a perfect representation of God, he must likewise be fully divine. And scripture attests to this as well. 
Like, for example, Philippians 2.6, which says that he existed in the form of God. Or even later in Colossians, Paul will say in, in verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and, and the God-man Jesus. Or later in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, it says in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus truly is the image of of the invisible God. And this explains what he meant when he said back in John 14, 9, he, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And he's not talking about the image of his flesh and bones. Again, as if God the Father secretly has a human body. No, he was talking about his perfect character and nature, his words and his works. He's the complete depiction and supreme revelation of the one true God. So now just take that and and think on that. Let that sink in. See that in scripture. You know what that means? Do you want to see God? And do you want to know God? Most people would say yes to that question. But but you know, now that Christ has come, you're going to see God most and know God most in Christ Jesus. You need to go to Christ now to know God, to see the image of God. Who, who is God? What's he like? What's he's, what has he done? What's he going to do? You got to go to Jesus now for the, the best representation, the, the complete representation of that. You can get a little bit from creation, but the image of Christ captured in scripture shows us our God. And furthermore, the, this image of God in Christ, it's, it's so perfect and complete, it actually becomes our standard now. You know, in the new creation or the recreation of salvation, we come to Christ, we're cleansed by faith, we're given a new nature, right? And our new selves are to be renewed and shaped into what image? Romans 8 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed. To the image of his son. And even later in Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. It says we have put on the new self. Who is being renewed to a true knowledge. According to the image of the one who created him. You know not only does Jesus show us God. He shows us who we are meant to be. In terms of our character. Not in terms of our looks. In terms of our, our essence. Our attributes. Our character. We're fallen, but in redemption, God will perfect us by fully conforming us to Christ's image. And that truly, we see Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And in that, he's, he's supreme. This is a display of his supremacy. Secondly, now, Jesus is preeminent. A second display, still from verse 15. He is preeminent. Look back at Colossians 1.15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he says, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, there's no shortage of controversy around this second display here. It all centers on your understanding of this term firstborn. This word in the Greek can literally refer to the firstborn child in time. In chronology, 
but it also has a metaphorical meaning where it refers to preeminence, like you're first in rank. And used in this way, it can refer to a child who is not actually born first, but was to be honored above all. An example is Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God calls Jacob his firstborn. Even though Jacob was born second, but God put his love on Jacob or Israel and made him preeminent among his brothers and among the nations. So when it says here, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it can be taken to mean that he is the first created being in creation, or it can be taken to mean that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. And so which is it? Well, I believe this clearly refers to Jesus being preeminent over all creation, but since that has garnered some controversy throughout church history, I figured, well, this is kind of why we're slowing a bit down. I want to show you why that is, why we believe that. And just start with Colossians itself. You know, these false teachers were diminishing Christ and attacking his person. He's not sufficient. He's not supreme, not divine. And Paul is writing in response to uphold the sufficiency, supremacy, and deity of Jesus. You know, there are other clear statements to this effect in Colossians. Like we just read, and we'll see later, Colossians 2.9. It's a pretty clear statement that in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's pretty clear. And Paul is arguing Jesus is God in human form. So to say that Jesus, he's actually the first part of creation, really undercuts his whole argument. It's inconsistent. That's precisely what the false teachers were insisting, that Jesus was you know, an emanation from God, but not supreme. And Paul's not agreeing with them. If Paul really wanted to say Jesus is the first created being, the first thing God created, there's a word in Greek for that, and why not just say it? But to the contrary, Paul is making the point that Jesus is supreme and divine. And in fact, he's the creator of all creation. He's going to say in the very next verse, verse 16, that this Jesus, he's not a part of creation. He's actually the source of creation. Verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created, visible, invisible, all things. You know, if Christ is part of creation, he's not actually the creator of all things. He's the creator of most things, but he didn't create himself. But of course, that's not what Paul is saying. Yahweh God is the creator of all things. And Paul's argument is that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He's the creator God in flesh. Also in verse 17, he's going to say that Jesus is before all things. And we will see later that is speaking of his preexistence. That he existed before creation and is co-eternal with the Father. That the Father and the Son shared this eternal glory before the world was. John 17, 5. And then also, did you know that there's a precedent for the Messiah being referred to as the firstborn of God, where it, it absolutely does not mean first created thing, but just preeminent, supreme in rank. It's Psalm 89, verse 27, where God, this is God speaking of the coming Messiah. Psalm 89, 27, God says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, it's God talking about the Messiah, that God's going to make him his firstborn. 
God himself defines what he means by this. He's not talking about time or chronology. He's talking about status or rank, preeminence. It's a legitimate use of this word, and and I believe that's how Paul is using this word here. To clarify a little bit further, you've got to realize, you know, we're talking here in Colossians 1 about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, part of Jesus was created, namely his human nature and human body. The human side of of the God-man had a beginning in space-time through Mary. We understand that. But that was not the beginning of the Son of God. The, The eternal Son of God was uncreated. And the eternal Son of God at the incarnation added to himself a human nature, Jesus of Nazareth. What Paul is saying here is now that person, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the preeminent one. He's not just a guy. He actually is the preeminent, preexistent Son of God and God the Son. That's what he's saying. I know that, that can sound hard to believe, like I said, still today like it was back then. You know, when Paul is writing this, it's, it had only been 30 years since Jesus was, was crucified by the Romans. It's kind of a hard pill for people to swallow. Like, so that peasant who was shamefully crucified, died on the cross, that guy is actually the pre-existent son of God. Right. But that's what scripture teaches. And that's the mystery of the Christ revealed now. Foreseen even in the Old Testament. Listen to, you know this, Isaiah 9-6. Very popular messianic prophecy. It says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. How does that fit together? Well, you find out in Jesus. There was a teacher named Arius in the 4th century AD who thought otherwise, that he took firstborn purely literally and taught that Jesus was simply the first created being. So he's not supreme, he's not eternal, he's not divine. And this set in motion the first great council of Nicaea in AD 325 where 300 bishops gathered to study the scriptures and to reject this teaching, affirming Christ's full deity that he's of the same substance or essence with the Father. And today, Arius' teachings are carried on by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But we rightly stand with Nicaea based on the scriptures that, no, this man Jesus is in fact the eternal Son of God. And the Son of God is firstborn, not in time, but in preeminence, in rank that he holds the position of supremacy over all of creation. And this is what makes the, not just the father, but the son worthy of all of our worship. Like you read for scripture this morning in Revelation 5, that is utter blasphemy if Jesus is merely the first created being. He's not worthy of the same worship that's given to the father. But the son receives the exact same worship. As the Father in Revelation 5, because, well, he is co-eternal and co-equal with God. The God-man, Christ Jesus, is preeminent over all creation. And the question now becomes, well, is he preeminent in your life? Is he now first in your life? That's something to reflect on more. We'll do that 
shortly. But first, let's just include one more display of Christ's supremacy. We're going to include one more here. Number three, Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Now move on to verse 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then he says in verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Why is Jesus preeminent over creation? Well, here Paul explains that this Jesus is not just a part of creation. He's the source of it. All of it. Now here Paul is actually stating in rapid fashion three separate facts about Jesus. That he is the sphere, agent, and goal of creation. He's the sphere, agent, and goal of creation. And this comes from these these three prepositions Paul uses in this verse. Namely, you know, in Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. You see that? In Jesus, through him, and for him. That all creation came about in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. So let's kind of break that down. Verse 16 says, for by him, or, or literally, it says, for in him, all things were created. And I think it's the better translation in him from the Greek. Paul, Paul's going to say later that Jesus is the instrument of creation, that, that by him or through him, all things were made. He's going to say that in a second. First, I believe he's saying that, that Jesus is the sphere of creation. That meaning in him, all things were created. And Paul talks about Jesus like that quite a bit, like Ephesians 1.4, that the people of God were chosen, not just by Jesus, but in Jesus. He's the sphere of salvation. And likewise, Jesus is the sphere of creation. This first statement is just this all-encompassing statement showing that no part of creation exists outside of Christ's domain. There's no molecule or galaxy that's not under the domain of Christ. You know, the the kid's song, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's true. And the universe and time and space and matter, it's, it's all just in his hands. He's supreme. And Paul expounds to show that when he says all things here, he actually means all things. He says, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible. These paired terms show that he really means everything. Everything there is, seen and unseen, is in Christ's domain. All people, all planets, all spiritual forces are in his world. And he takes the last notion there, that things invisible, and he further expounds on that. That in case you were mistaken, you know, Christ's domain includes, he says, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Now, at first, that might just sound odd to you and strange, like, what's that talking about? But you do some Bible study, some cross-referencing, it becomes clear pretty quickly that these, these words are used very often to refer to spiritual beings. We're talking angels and demons, the spiritual realm. 
For example, Ephesians 6.12. It says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a very real unseen world of spiritual beings. Hard for us to imagine. I don't know, maybe today it's a little easier with the, the notion of you know, parallel dimensions. But the ancient world, they, they didn't struggle with the thought. They accepted this. The fact that there are spiritual forces at work in our world. And these forces ha- can have a real impact on human affairs, even changing the course of nations. And actually the Bible supports that. We don't have time, but just like read the book of Daniel and you will see that very much laid out. There's a very real power struggle and war of influence among spiritual forces. And today that influence is still surely felt in astrology and the occult and elsewhere. The solution in Colossae at the time was just, you know, serve them all. You need to pay homage to the whole host of these spiritual forces if you want protection, if you want things to go well for you. But no, Paul says Jesus is supreme. And without getting into the hierarchy of these spiritual beings, his point is, look, Jesus is over them all. They're all a part of his created domain. And so only Jesus is worthy of your allegiance and your worship. In fact, Jesus, he's even the creator of these spiritual beings. See how Paul says next that all things have been created through him. You see that? Now, Jesus, he is the instrument of creation. John 1, 3 confirms, this is all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You know, in the Old Testament, it's quite clear that, that Yahweh God is that creator. There's no other creator. It's, it's part of his divine attributes. That only God has the divine power to speak things into existence. But the New Testament reveals that, that Jesus is that creator God, become incarnate. Or rather, that creator God has become incarnate in Jesus. That Jesus does not replace or displace the God of the Old Testament. That Paul is still monotheistic. But God the Son in Jesus Christ has made visible the image of the creator God. And then lastly, Paul says that all things have been created for him. You see that at the end, not just through him, but also for him. That really takes his supremacy up another level. That not only was he the source of all things in creation, but he's also the end, the goal of all creation. That all creation finds its purpose in Christ. That God made the sun, all things for the sun's glory, and that glory is directed to the sun. The stars were made to sing his praises. The earth was made to showcase his majesty. We were made to reflect his nature. Yet Jesus truly is the end or the goal of all things. So at this point, look, we've only made it through three of these nine displays of Christ's supremacy. We could just rattle through the rest, but I figured, why don't we stop and just spend a little time reflecting on them, though, and how they matter. We'll get to the rest next week anyway. But we need to think deeply on already what we've received, right? We've seen Jesus as the image of the invisible God. He's not a 
image. He's the image. He's the perfect revelation of who God is. And this is why Jesus is at the very heart of Christianity. It's why, like I said before, if you want to get to know God, now you need to get to know Jesus. That we see in Jesus the very essence, nature, and attributes of Jesus on, of God on display. Now, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. This also means, you know, all those people who claim to seek God and know God, apart from Christ, are wrong. That you're not going to find God looking elsewhere. Jesus truly is the way, truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. He's now your only means and access to who God is and reconciliation with God. Jesus needs to be the center of your life as well. You know, it's also worth reflecting on Jesus as our image. And scripture says we were made to be image bearers of God. Not a complete image, but a sufficient image. But as you know, we're, we're fallen. And the image of God in man has been marred. It's not lost, but it has been distorted and warped and corrupted by sin. That image can be restored as part of God's gift of salvation. That is, you come to repent of your sin confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. God remakes the image in you, giving you a new nature. And that image is meant to now grow, to be renewed and shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. And like a child has to grow up into the form of an adult, we are to grow up into Christ, the head, to be made complete in him. It's important for you to recognize, though, that that's our goal now. You see that? That Christ's image which is the image of God, that is now our, what we're aiming at here in sanctification, in the Christian life. When you become a Christian, your goal is not just to become marginally a better person or just like nicer. Your goal is to become perfectly like Christ. That we are now aiming to look like him, not in physical appearance, but in his, his nature, his attributes, his words, his works, his essence, that that should be our image now. That's something you need to know. Is that something you ever think about or take seriously? I mean, do you have Christ-likeness as a real goal in your Christian life? That, that I'm pursuing the Lord, like Paul's going to say later, later, he seeks to present every man complete or full in Christ. Is that, is that like your life? I'm, I'm pursuing him, a person, to be conformed to his image. Because I believe that is the perfect image. That, that's what God is like. That's what God created me to be like. I can be re- I've been redeemed. I can now pursue that by his grace. And this is part of his preeminence, as we also learned. You know, as the firstborn, it's right for Jesus to have first place in our lives. And Paul's going to say in verse 18, he should be first in all things. That Jesus should be preeminent in your, your daily life, in your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, your speech. It's only right for that all to just revolve around him. It's no wonder the world might call us like Jesus freaks. It just sounds a little uh, obsessive. But when you recognize him for who he is, no, it's actually just appropriate. It's, it's what creation was made for. 
Now, I hope you're just getting just the sense of a real Christ-centeredness to everything. You know, Paul knew that, and Paul lived that. Remember Philippians 1.21, he said, For me, or for to me, to live is Christ. Remember that? He doesn't say to live is to know Christ, or to live is to follow Christ. He just says this all-encompassing, kind of strange statement, just to live is Christ. Christ is our life. This is a radical discipleship. But, but so be it, because Jesus is supreme. This is a far cry from Jesus merely being your buddy, or your spiritual guru, or you know, your ticket to a prosperous life. No, he's the supreme center of the universe. So he should be the supreme center of you. And it's only right for Jesus to be the supreme center of all things and, and the universe. Because after all, he made the thing. And so we also found that he's the beginning and the end of all things. And it's really no understatement. That presents a worldview clash here. That man in his pride has knocked God off of his throne and replaced him. That God did not create the universe. The Big Bang did. That everything came about through time and chance. And that includes man. We just evolved from some cosmic soup. But now, now we're masters of the universe. I mean, look, what, look how we can wield the forces of nature to our glory. And the man has merely repeated the error of Babel. But scripture says, no, that the whole universe came about in, through, and for the sun. You know, in physics, there are four fundamental, irreducible forces of nature. Gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. You all knew that, right? I'm sure you, you all knew that. But we cannot even conceive of life or existence apart from these four forces. Where did they come from? Like, who programmed every atom in the universe according to these four forces, apart from which you can't even have a, an atom or anything? It didn't happen by chance. The answer is Jesus. He wrote them. He willed them. He made them. He made you too. The universe is not simply a product of time and chance. It was made on purpose, with a purpose. And you need to let scripture shape your worldview. Because only in Christ will you find God's purpose for the world and his purpose for your life. The only way to truly make sense of life And existence itself is in Christ. And your response to all this, among many things, should be to simply bow the knee to this Christ. Serve, worship, exalt, behold him. All beings owe their very existence to him. And all beings will answer to him as well. In Philippians 2.9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You got to come to terms with the fact that you are not the center of the universe, but Jesus is, and that your life was made for a reason. To exalt the Son of God. 
that he will derive glory from your life one way or another, either in salvation or in judgment. And in both acts, he derives glory from you. One is the display of his unfathomable mercy. The other is a perfect display of his justice. From your perspective, though, far better to be a display of mercy. Far better to be invited into the presence of his glory and to be reconciled with your maker. And that happens when you bow the knee, when you recognize him and confess him for who he is. This Jesus Christ is Lord. So I'm going to live my life in him, through him, and for him. And I pray that your eyes are open this morning just to see the, the cosmic supremacy of Christ so that he will come to be supreme in your own life. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we, we bow before you and your throne and the throne of your son as well. We worship you and we worship the son as well and, and only rightly so. For he is the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent over all things. He, he made all things. That includes us. We were made for a reason, a purpose, that life does have a meaning and it's found in Christ. We're made to reflect him and his image and in so doing to exalt him. We have fallen way far short of that though, Lord, in sin. We, we, we spurn him, we scorn him, we reject him and our image has been lost. But you show your great love and your mercy in sending the son to take on human nature, to die for us in our place. We might be forgiven and saved and remade, reshaped into his image complete. These are wondrous mysteries of the gospel that have been revealed that we now know. And I pray we cherish them. We believe in them. We rest in them. And we see in Christ our very purpose, our meaning in life. And therefore our goal that we have as Christ, uh, the ultimate reason why we are alive, that we can say to live is Christ. And then to die is gain because in death we just gain him. And that's everything. We gain all riches of treasure when we gain Christ. Make this true for us. Bring us to this faith and a deepening faith in him to see with with fresh eyes who the son is. We might marvel and worship him with our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.